President Biden says Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Could it end up being a loss? The lead starts right now. Two world leaders, two starkly different messages, a NATO rallying cry from Biden, while Putin blames the West for forcing him to invade. Both leaders vowing to stay the course as Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine nears the one-year mark. Plus, I'll speak with a congressional Democrat from Minnesota assaulted in her D.C. apartment building, why she's now blaming a segment on Fox for threats to her that came afterwards. And as the EPA demands Norfolk Southern clean up its toxic train wreck in Ohio, Democratic and Republican governors are blaming the company for corporate greed. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start in our world lead today with President Biden's big speech in Poland earlier today, marking nearly one year since Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Biden reaffirmed the U.S.'s commitment to Ukraine, reminding the world that there's more at stake than one country's sovereignty, sovereignty, the freedom for all future generations, he said. There is no sweeter word than freedom. There is no nobler goal than freedom. There's no higher aspiration than freedom. Americans know that, and you know it. And all that we do now must be done so our children and grandchildren will know it as well. Biden's speech also seemed a clear rebuke of Russian President Putin, whom Biden named directly 10 times. Earlier today, Putin delivered his own speech, where he suspended Russia's participation in a major nuclear arms treaty with the U.S., and tried to blame the West for the conflict in Ukraine, a claim further undermined by his own military's very actions just a few hours ago on the streets of a Kherson neighborhood. Destroyed. A Russian strike leaving five dead, another 16 wounded. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Phil Mattingly in Warsaw, Poland, where Biden delivered this historic address. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. President Biden delivering an unequivocal vow to the world. We have to be honest and clear-eyed as we look at the year ahead. And an unflinching assessment of the stakes of the moment as Russia's war on Ukraine nears its second year. That's what's at stake here. Freedom. Biden's remarks framed with the lighting, soundtrack, and thousands in the crowd for maximum effect set Warsaw as a nod to a stalwart member of the NATO alliance, one with a history defined by transformational ideological struggles. During decades under the iron fist of communist rule, Poland endured because you stood together. Coming just hours after Russian President Vladimir Putin delivered his own speech, signaling Russian escalation. But while aides said Biden's speech was explicitly not a rebuttal, appetites of the autocrat cannot be appeased. They must be opposed. It served as a showcase for what has become visceral disdain for the Russian leader. President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail, and the Ukrainian people's love for their country will prevail. And a clear effort to take apart Putin's central rationale for his unprovoked invasion. He could end the war with a word. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, it would end the war. If Ukraine... Stop defending itself against Russia would be the end of Ukraine. Coming just 24 hours after a dramatic surprise visit to Kyiv. Kyiv stands strong. Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. Biden reiterating unyielding U.S. support. 
and the durability of the coalition essential to Ukraine's fight. There will continue to be hard and very bitter days, victories and tragedies. But Ukraine is still for the fight ahead. But underscoring the necessity of Western democracies maintaining their support. The democracies of the world have to deliver it for our people. And the critical nature, the commitments that will echo far beyond the year to come. The world, in my view, is at an, at an inflection point. The decisions we make over the next five years or so are going to determine and shape our lives for decades to come. And Jake, while there was certainly a split screen between Presidents Putin and President Biden today, there's also a split screen from the last time President Biden was here in Warsaw giving a speech, laying out the stakes, very similar location, but very different tone, very sober, very steadfast, very stark about what the uh, Western world faced. This was more of a rally, an effort to really kind of draw a contrast from that moment and really underscore the fact that Western democracies have accomplished an awful lot in the last 11 months, according to White House officials, even if they have so much more to accomplish in the months ahead. Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly in Warsaw, Poland for us. Thanks so much. As Mattingly mentioned hours before Biden spoke, Putin delivered his own message to mark one year of what he calls a special military operation, Putin arguing that the West is responsible for the escalation in Ukraine, a message the White House fervently denies. Shortly after Putin's speech, Russia launched a new round of shelling on a residential area in Kherson, killing five people, injuring 16 more. These are former stores and shops. CNN's Fred Pleiken reports now on Putin's speech from Moscow. President Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin a determined Russian leader entering center stage. Vladimir Putin showing he will not back down from the war in Ukraine, calling Kiev's leadership illegitimate. The Kiev regime is essentially alien to the people of Ukraine, he said. They are not protecting their own interests, but those of their minder countries. Putin squarely blames the West for the conflict, even though it was Russian forces that invaded Ukraine almost a year ago. The Kremlin claims Russia is under assault from the West, even more so after President Joe Biden went to Kiev to meet Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, showing the U.S.'s resolve to help Ukraine stand up to Moscow. The elite of the West does not conceal their ambitions, which is to strategically defeat Russia, he says. What does that mean? It means to finish us off once and for all, while Putin praised his army, he acknowledged they need better gear, as progress has been hard to come by and losses mount in the face of stiff Ukrainian resistance. Still, support among Russians, both for what Putin calls the special military operation and the Russian leader himself, remain rock-solid, Russia's top independent pollster tells CNN. Now it's about 80 percent, uh, because, again, situation calmed down a little bit by the end of the year. People accommodated, get used again, and uh, the rating, his rating stabilized. And patriotism is on full display in Moscow, though not everyone wants to talk about it. We see CNN. The operation is going sluggishly, this man says. We must strike the centers, like Germany, London. I think the West will bend and be forced to make concessions, he says. What opinion can there be? We shouldn't have barged into where we weren't wanted, this man says. 
Putin saved arguably his biggest message for last, announcing Russia is suspending its participation in the new strategic arms reduction treaty after Moscow last year accused Ukraine of striking an air base for strategic bombers. We know that NATO is complicit in the attempts by the Kiev regime to strike our air bases, and now they want to come and inspect our bases? While Putin says the treaty could be revived if relations between the U.S. and Russia improve, on this day, the gulf between Russia and the West further widened. So you see the view from the Kremlin there, Jake, and I was actually able to get in touch with the Kremlin spokesman uh, tonight as well and ask him about President Biden's speech, specifically President Biden's comments that Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. And the spokesman came back with some pretty harsh comments. He said it's impossible to talk about destroying Russia without nuclear war and that nuclear war would have no winners. He also said that he firmly believes, like Vladimir Putin apparently also believes, that the ultimate goal of the United States is weakening Russia and the disintegration of Russia. So as you can see, some pretty harsh words coming out of Moscow tonight, Jake. Fred Plotkin in Moscow for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, who's in Kiev. And the co-anchor of CNN this morning, Caitlin Collins, who's in Warsaw, Poland. Clarissa, let me start with you. How are Ukrainians reacting to these dual speeches from Biden and Putin? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, Jake, President Zelensky said that he didn't watch Putin's speech earlier today, but then he did obviously get uh, the cliff notes, if you will, because he went on to issue a statement saying uh, that Putin essentially is communicating as a terrorist. The only difference is that terrorists wear masks and these guys don't cover their faces. That obviously in very stark contrast to his response on Twitter uh, to the speech that President Biden gave, where he said, I thank POTUS and all of America for their leadership in rallying the world in support of freedom. Kiev stands strong. Kiev stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. Clearly, that uh, symbolism of Biden's visit and also uh, the symbolism that he was conjuring up in his speech today resonated very deeply. I will bring up one other top advisor uh, to President Zelensky, Mikhail Podolyak, who, who, who wrote this, which I think really kind of sort of hits it on the head, if you will, comparing the two speeches, black and white, dead and alive, the past and the future, the fading away Putin and the dominant Biden, two speeches that put everything in its place. I think for many Ukrainians, Jake, the takeaway here is how on earth could you expect any kind of a political settlement to even be talked about at this stage when you clearly have Moscow living in a sort of alternate universe or alternate version of reality. Yeah. And uh, Caitlin, Clarissa talked about how Biden was was rallying the West. And we should talk about the the tone, the overall vibe of the speech today. He, he walks out to an upbeat song, uh, the crowd cheering. Uh, it was very celebratory. Is that how the U.S. and allies see this all, kind of a celebration because Ukraine is still standing uh, one year in? Yeah, maybe not exactly a celebration, Jake, but certainly an affirmation of what they've been saying when it comes to the coalition, to the alliance, to the way that NATO and its allies have rallied behind Ukraine in the way that they have to help them, with their, whether it's humanitarian assistance or sending weapons or what they've done over the last, you know, 12 months as we close in on this one year anniversary. And so certainly I think there is a validation in that sense, because that has really been President Biden's message ever since he took office, this idea of autocracy versus democracy 
democracy. And he was saying that Putin was wrong today, saying that he believed that autocracies would get stronger. They grew weaker. Democracies grew stronger instead of weaker and making that point. But I think also the White House, you know, before they would go to the step of celebrating, they realized that this is an increasingly complex situation on the ground in Ukraine. They are very worried about it becoming a standstill and how long it could drag out. And uh, they are worried about support waning at home. You know, President Biden saying today that the support will never tire, that America and NATO will be behind Ukraine. But obviously you've got lawmakers in Washington who are already raising complaints about how much money is going there. So I do think it's a real concern for them, even if they do feel validated in the way that Putin has been wrong time and time again over the last 12 months. And and Caitlin, this has a big This has been a big 48 hours for President Biden. He had that surprise trip to Ukraine, followed by this big speech in in Poland. Uh, As uh, the same time, you talk about the criticism from Republicans, but also a lot of Americans are questioning whether Biden should be reelected due to his age. I guess um, I'm guessing that White House aides see the vigor uh, and uh, the the energy he's displayed on, on this trip as a rebuttal to that almost. Yeah, I think they think he deserves some credit here because he left Washington at 4 a.m. on Sunday morning, took a 10-hour train ride to Kiev both ways, was only there on the ground for about six hours. And yes, it's one a trip that other world leaders have made. It's obviously more difficult for the president of the United States, who has one of the highest levels of security of any leader in the world. And so the White House was kind of making the argument that he had a really good week. He had a very strong week, they believed, when he was on the ground in Ukraine. They believed it was the perfect way to set him up for this visit here in Poland, you know, 11 months after he was here last time. And so I think that they do believe that this shows that, you know, he had the the strength and the fortitude to make such a arduous journey and then come and deliver that fiery speech talking about the resolve of the United States behind Ukraine tonight. Yeah. And the only time in, in history that an American president went to the front lines of a war zone without the presence of the U.S. military there Clarissa, um, Russia shelled Kherson today, killing five people, injuring another 16. Um, Are Ukrainians worried that after Biden comes back to Washington, D.C., all the other leaders go back home, that there could be an even greater escalation in attacks near the end of the week as the war hits its one year mark? I think they're worried that this could devolve into a protracted stalemate, as you heard Caitlin articulate there as well. It's a fear of the White House that if they don't get the weapons that they believe they need in order to mount a really strong counteroffensive, that they are going to continue to be very vulnerable in places across the country. And I think it's also just a really important reminder for people all across the world that this is still a hell war. And while there may be moments of celebrating the achievements that have been made, there is still a lot of suffering going on and a lot of work to be done to put a stop to it, Jake. Yeah. The images that we're showing viewers from Kherson, I've seen some other ones from that same attack that have innocent people, their bodies on the street. Clarissa Ward and Caitlin Collins, thanks so much to both of you. The challenges ahead for Ukraine as Russia's invasion nears the one-year mark. Plus, The family uh, is taking on the online giant Google. How's this case is now with the Supreme Court could upend what you see on the Internet. And we're back with our world lead and the dueling speeches between President Biden and Russian President Putin. Biden in his speech delivered a clear warning to autocrats around the world. Democracies of the world have grown stronger, not weaker 
But the autocrats of the world have grown weaker, not stronger. Retired General Philip Breedlove is with me to discuss. He's the former NATO Supreme Allied Commander. General, thanks for joining us. So Biden's address in in some ways seemed a a celebration or at least an affirmation that one year after Russia invaded Kiev and Ukraine are still standing strong. But the war is far from over. Uh, How long do you think it's going to drag on? Well, I think that that's entirely in the hands of policymakers in the West. If we give Ukraine what they need to win, a set of words we haven't used for some time now, then the war will end quicker. If we decide to continue to supply them as we are now, which we're very thankful for, but if we do not give them the decisive capabilities they need to win, then the war is going to drag on. So President Biden's public message today was that the U.S. is going to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. But one senior administration official told The Washington Post a few days ago, quote, we will continue to try to impress upon Ukrainian leaders that we can't do anything and everything forever, unquote. What do you make of the difference in the public and private messaging here? Well, it goes back to the sentence that he used, which I think is incomplete. We say we're going to stay with Ukraine as long as it takes. As long as it takes to do what? Again, I say, if we are going to supply them to win, to expel this this illegal, immoral, invading force from Ukraine, then we need to give them the capability to do that. And as long as it takes will not be as long. If we continue at the current pace of providing the types of weapons that we are, um, that's sort of keeping Ukraine on the battlefield. Yeah. The two uh, leading candidates for the Republican presidential nomination, Governor Ron DeSantis and uh, former President Trump, both of them have voiced uh, skepticism about the U.S. involvement in this. DeSantis saying something like he didn't think it was smart to be involved in a proxy war with Russia. Um, In total, um, the U.S. has spent about $30 billion in aid uh, to Ukraine. Um, and, And one of the real issues here is that public support Uh, is dropping. 60% of Americans supported giving weapons in May 2022. Only 48% did last month. Um, So there is some war fatigue uh, setting in. There certainly is. And, And I think that it's important that the president and this administration get out there now and give a strong voice to the American people of why we're doing what we're doing. And oh, by the way, in Congress and there are other candidates on the Republican side who feel that we should be there and we all of them, including me, I'm among that. We, we should be articulating well to the American people why this is important. And when it comes to the money, Jake, so let's just compare that year of funding to Ukraine to any one year in current year dollars of World War I or World War II. It's minuscule. And so what we're spending now and the ability to avoid a world war, I think is something we need to think about. If we allow this to become a world war uh, and Russia's intentions are pretty clear about what they're doing, um, then, then the cost will just go astronomically up. All right. Retired General and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Philip Breedlove, thanks to you Appreciate it. This evening, CNN's Wolf Blitzer will speak with former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Plus, fresh off Biden's speech in Poland, Polish President Andrzej Duda will talk with CNN's Christian Amanporn. You can see those interviews at 9 p.m. 
Eastern this evening, only here on CNN. Thursday, it's a special CNN town hall. Russia's invasion of Ukraine one year later. Top Biden national security officials will join CNN's Fareed Zakaria. That's Thursday night at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, a congresswoman assaulted, forced to throw hot water on her attacker, and that's not the end of it. I'll speak with her about the threats that came later. International lead, a Democratic congresswoman, is facing a new wave of violent threats just days after she was physically assaulted in her apartment building. Congresswoman Angie Craig, who represents suburban Minneapolis, says the threats came after a segment on Fox where one of the hosts, Janine Pirro, tried to use the violent assault on Congresswoman Craig to make a political point of some sort. If you want to defund the police, we'll notify 911. Whenever you call them, you don't get the police. But now that the congresswoman has been victimized, now she feels your pain? Nonsense. And for those who say at least now she's on our side, baloney. Craig's office says she has a, quote, proven record of supporting law enforcement and fighting to ensure they have the resources they need to do their job safely and effectively, unquote. But these are just some of the calls she has received since that segment aired. Reading Democratic lawmaker ties to defund the police call for a crackdown on crime because you were assaulted. You know, I got to tell you, you're a hypocrite. That's what happens when you defund the police, genius. I hope it happens to you again because you deserve it. Can you support the defund the police? I'm so glad you got attacked. Maybe now you'll you'll care about somebody else, you asshole. You hypocrite. You. You. Congresswoman Angie Craig joins me now. Congresswoman, I, I want to ask about these threats and allegations, but first, um, how are you doing? How's your family doing? Well, we're doing as good as we can, uh, Jake, and I appreciate you having me on here this afternoon. You know, the initial uh, assault was um, uh, I was just another woman getting into an elevator in a random attack. Uh, But what the uh, National Republican uh, Congressional Campaign Committee and Fox News has done has really just, uh, you know, accelerated the number of attacks that we're getting directly and specifically at this point. You're still getting and having to report these threatening calls and messages. What's been your, your reaction watching all of this unfold? Well, look, the the lies are dangerous. And what I want the GOP to do is I want them to stop lying about my record uh, and about the record of Democrats in general across the country. Uh, You know, I have a strong relationship and track record of supporting law enforcement in the second district of Minnesota. In fact, I was literally endorsed uh, by the police in my last election. And uh, I, I think that this is so dangerous. And one of the problems it really unearths is that when we create a political wedge issue out of something that people ought to expect, which is Everyone deserves to feel safe in their own communities. And if you use it as a political wedge issue and you just sort of lob these attacks uh, in general, uh, it's really not supporting law enforcement. Yeah. So what was interesting is you actually have never called for defunding the police. I mean, my staff and I were looking and the Fox story that one of your callers was uh, quoting from said that you had ties to defund the police based on some comment that a staffer made before they joined your staff, some organizations that you've affiliated yourself with, um, but nothing you have said expressly except saying that 
there should be counselors, uh, not cops, for some situations. As you know, this does appear fueled by a statement put out by the National Republican Campaign Committee, which still says, still to this day on their website says, violent crime is running rampant while hypocrites like Angie Craig are backtracking on their previous support for defunding the police. In recent years, Craig received donations from organizations that support defunding the police, even hiring defund the police advocates and siding with Ilhan Omar 93% of the time. So, I mean, it's, it's really spurious stuff. I've never found any evidence that you ever called for defunding the police. I, I just wonder, like, the NRCC, these are people, that, these are colleagues of yours. I mean, the chair of the NRCC is somebody who works in Congress. Did they really put that statement out after you were physically attacked? Jake, five days after I was attacked, they put the statement out. I, literally, uh, I took a punch to the face in the physical assault, and the bruise had not healed from my chin or the cut on the bottom of my lip when this statement went out. And uh, it really just is egregious. I mean, it's so egregious that this morning, today, uh, and yesterday, the head of the, the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association, the rank-and-file members uh, of the of law enforcement here in Minnesota put out a press release saying just uh, how ridiculous these accusations have been because, you know, I've done nothing but uh, help local law enforcement. So, uh, you know, this is really just uh, an illustration of how um, gutter politics and outright lies and absurdities have infiltrated our politics and frankly, uh, Fox News and many of the commentators who work there. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous to elected officials like myself. It's dangerous to our democracy uh, when you can't tell the truth to your viewers. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, even if you had called for defunding the police, that doesn't mean that anybody should be making light of you being punched in the face. I mean, it doesn't matter your political position. But that said, they're also just lying. It's also just a, a blatant Lie, do you need additional security? Are you worried about your safety? Well, look, we all have been worried about our safety. We all have received threats over the last uh, a couple of years, especially. They've gone up um, tremendously of members of Congress. Uh, you know, I spent a whole lot of time uh, making sure that we had security presence at public events here in Minnesota. Obviously, members of Congress have done a number of things to uh, protect our own homes. Uh, more difficult is sort of the random assault uh, that might occur. But of course, every member of Congress is uh, concerned about keeping themselves and uh, their family safe. But not just because we're members, uh, every American has the right to feel safe and be protected. So, you know, public safety is a, is a huge issue. And, you know, the incident that I experienced in Washington was really the intersection of uh, a homeless individual with mental health issues, with addiction issues, who also um, had a number of assaults on their record. And I was the 13th assault uh, on this person's record. And, you know, the intersection of all of that is something that I feel like I really need to work on uh, because every American, every Minnesotan deserves to feel safe. Yeah. And, and certainly in D.C. here as well. And there is a conversation to be had about repeat offenders and, and whether letting them out on the street so easily uh, is, is the right thing to do for the safety of the public. Lastly, before you go, if you could address the people who are lying about your record here or the people who think it's okay to call you up and threaten you, what would you say to them? 
Well, look, it's super dangerous uh, to the GOP, uh, to its leadership, to the NRCC. I would say that it's out of control and you need to stop lying about our records. And um, you're you're part of the problem if you are compelling folks uh, to use violence against your colleagues. And, you know, I would just say that um, the GOP needs to get to work. They need to get to work to lower the cost of health care in our country, to lower the cost of gas prices and actually address public safety, not as a political wedge issue, but let's figure out how we work together to get law enforcement what they need to be successful to keep our communities safe. Well, Democratic Congresswoman Angie Craig, we're glad uh, that you're feeling better. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks, Jake. Coming up next, why the mayor in East Palestine, Ohio, called President Biden's trip to Ukraine a big slap in the face to the citizens of his area. Stay with us. In our national lead earlier today, the mayor of East Palestine, Ohio, attacked President Biden for visiting Ukraine on Monday as his village is dealing with the disastrous train derailment. He called it a slap in the face to the people of East Palestine. Meanwhile, government officials are pointing fingers at Norfolk Southern, referring to the company's arrogance and incompetence and corporate greed in the company's handling of the derailment. The EPA today ordered Norfolk Southern to pay for the entire cleanup of toxic chemicals that spilled nearly three weeks ago. But as CNN's Miguel Marquez reports for us now, it's unclear if this demand for accountability will satisfy the residents of East Palestine. Thank you for inviting us into your home. Nearly three weeks after the derailment, people in East Palestine, Ohio, still concerned. We need to feel safe yes. in our home. I mean, I don't even walk in my grass because I don't know what's in it. Officials say the air and water deemed safe so far, but not everyone is convinced. So it's safe to drink the water? Water's safe. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't even brushed my teeth with it. No, right. East Palestine resident Carolyn Brown hosted the EPA administrator Michael Regan and Ohio Governor Mike DeWine in her kitchen, both assuring her her municipal tap water is safe. We believe in science, so we don't feel like we're being your guinea pig. But we don't mind proving to you that we believe the water. Here's to Carolina. Here's to you. They say the village tap water testing will continue for years, and anyone with a private well should have it tested as well. Norfolk Southern's corporate greed, incompetence, and lack of care for our residents is absolutely unacceptable to me. The governor of neighboring Pennsylvania announced his state made a criminal referral to investigate Norfolk Southern's handling of the derailment. This as the EPA announced it is ordering Norfolk Southern to complete all of the cleanup, or the agency will immediately take over and seek to compel the company to pay triple the cost. I expect within the next 48 hours, uh, Norfolk Southern will begin working with the agency on the contents of the work plan. Uh, They have to put together a work plan that's going to be very prescriptive. We're going to be here tomorrow, we're going to be here a year from now, and we're going to be here five years from now. And the CEO of the railroad says it is already committed to doing what's right. We're going to invest in this community, and we're going to do it in the right way, and we're going to do it the right time. Residents be be pointed in this direction. At a church across town, a new medical clinic opening up today to help people concerned about getting sick from the chemicals spilled in the derailment and controlled burn. We want to help get people on the right track and navigate them through this healthcare system. But there is much more to be done.
We're moving as fast as we physically can. Of course, time is of the essence. While trains are running through the town again, the soil underneath the open tracks still contaminated. We know the soil is contaminated under there. They know it's contaminated. They know what it's contaminated with. We have done that testing. There is a long-term remediation plan that includes getting that soil out from under those tracks. We're at zeros. For now, it's all about building trust and getting people the help and answers they need. We're going to continue to follow the science. We're going to continue to listen to the experts who understand this. But the toxicity, the cleanup, and the distrust is also political. That was the biggest slap in the face. The mayor of East Palestine on Fox News criticizing President Joe Biden for going to Ukraine instead of coming here. He can send every agency he wants to, but uh, I found that out this morning in one of the briefings that he was in the Ukraine giving millions of dollars away to people over there and not to us, and I'm furious. So we are about a mile and a half from the derailment site in East Palestine. I want to show you sort of the, the effort to clean this up. This is a confluence of two creeks in the middle of town. They are both contaminated. They are sucking water out of it, trying to clean it up and then inject it back in. Uh, the mayor today at the press conference tried to play down those comments on Fox News, saying that the president is welcome to East Palestine and that this is not a uh, political situation. Jake. All right, Miguel Marquez in East Palestine, Ohio for us. Thanks so much. I will host special coverage of this environmental disaster in Ohio tomorrow night at 9 Eastern here on CNN. Toxic train disaster. Ohio residents speak out a live CNN special tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. Coming up next, hear the reluctant tone from Supreme Court justices as they heard a case aiming to reshape Internet algorithms. Stay with us. For nearly three hours today, Supreme Court justices questioned attorneys in a case that could, could completely upend the Internet. The family of a woman killed in an ISIS attack argued that YouTube should be responsible for her death because YouTube's algorithms promoted ISIS-linked videos that radicalized viewers. Now, under this legal theory, big tech companies could face liability and an endless wave of lawsuits, and so could, frankly, individual users, potentially even including you. But as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us now, the justices today appeared to be a bit skeptical. Lawsuits will be nonstop. The Supreme Court taking on a case that could reshape the Internet, hearing arguments from a family who has lost a daughter and who now wants big tech to pay. We continue in this fight because we're seeking justice. The Gonzalez family's long legal fight started when their 23-year-old daughter, Noemi, was killed in Paris in 2015. Noemi Gonzalez was at a bistro when ISIS terrorists unleashed gunfire, part of a coordinated citywide attack of bombings and shootings that killed 129 people. She was the only American. It was a terrible, horrible moment in my life that I cannot describe mm, the pain. The Gonzalez family now wants YouTube and parent company Google to be held liable for Noemi's death. Their lawyer arguing to the Supreme Court Tuesday that because YouTube not only allowed ISIS videos on its site, but also recommended those videos to certain viewers, the social media site should be held responsible for aiding and abetting terrorism. When they go beyond delivering to you what you've asked for, to start sending things you haven't asked for, 
architecture is, they're no longer acting as a director. So even if I... But Google says they are protected by the broad contours of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Congress passed the law in 1996 to shield Internet platforms from being sued for harmful content posted by third parties on their sites. Google's lawyer argued that shield also applies to any recommendations the site might make. Exposing websites to liability for implicitly recommending third-party content defies the text and threatens today's Internet. This is the first time the Supreme Court has considered the scope of Section 230. The justices acknowledge that if the Gonzalez family succeeds, that would open up tech companies to a flood of lawsuits and would require social media sites to heavily police the content posted. And the justices also asked whether it's Congress and not the courts who should clarify how much tech companies are protected. Every other industry has to internalize the costs of misconduct. Why is it that the tech industry gets a pass? A little bit unclear. On the other hand, I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. Isn't that something for Congress to do, not the court? The Gonzalez family has lost the case at the lower courts, but they continue to search for justice after the death of their daughter at the hands of terrorists. Nothing is going to give me back my daughter, but at least that is something good is going to be accomplished. Now, the Supreme Court will hear another related case tomorrow morning that will determine if social media companies are responsible for the terrorist content on their sites under an anti-terrorism law. But, Jake, that case doesn't involve Section 230. So these are two distinct cases, though related. And, of course, big tech is really bracing for when the rulings of these cases come down sometime before the end of June. All right, Jessica Schneider, fascinating. Thank you so much. Coming up, his father is on trial for the murder of his mother and his brother, and now the only surviving son of Alec Murdoch is testifying. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, his mother and his brother were murdered, and now the only surviving son of Alec Murdoch, Buster Murdoch, is testifying in his father's murder trial. Plus, lawmakers in Idaho want to make it a felony for physicians to give specific care to transgender youth, including sex reassignment surgery or hormone therapy or puberty blockers. We're going to talk to a family who is trying to stop the bill. And leading this hour, a tale of two presidents and two speeches with two very different messages. Russian President Vladimir Putin took the stage first early this morning in Moscow, justified his year-long invasion of Ukraine by blaming Ukraine, the United States, and other Western allies for the war. Hours later in Poland, President Joe Biden delivered a rallying cry to the world, declaring Kyiv standing strong, vowing the United States will keep supporting Ukraine. Biden accused Putin of committing atrocities and said he would not succeed. CNN chief White House correspondent Phil Mattingly is in Poland with President Biden. Phil, One of the main themes is one that you've heard Biden talk about before, this idea of democracy versus autocracy. How did Biden make his case? You know, Jake, if yesterday in Kyiv, that surprise visit was a dramatic, deeply symbolic moment about the war itself, today was an effort to really paint a broader picture, underscore the bigger stakes, a larger effort that the president detailed about why this wasn't just about Ukraine or just about the war, but instead about the fate of Western democracies, an ideological struggle that harkened back to communism and even further back, particularly poignant here in Warsaw. As the president detailed, this was about freedom. 
There is no sweeter word than freedom. There is no nobler goal than freedom. There's no higher aspiration than freedom. Americans know that and you know it. And all that we do now must be done so our children and grandchildren will know it as well. And Jake, when you talk to White House advisors, they acknowledge that they understand this war that is ongoing shows no sign of ending anytime soon. The Western coalition that has been painstakingly held together with a level of durability that I think surprises even some U.S. officials is not a guaranteed piece of this process. That's why this speech today was considered so important. That's why the stakes being detailed as they were were viewed as so critical. And Phil, the setting of the speech was striking. It was almost an Olympic Disney vibe accompanied by pop music, kids waving flags. Now, estimates from both sides are incomplete, but we know tens of thousands of people have been killed in Putin's unprovoked war. Um, What was the the reason for making this a little bit more celebratory than instead of somber? Jake, it was jarring when you walked in. There was lights, there was Beyonce playing or Bruce Springsteen playing. It, It felt like a campaign rally to some degree. And the reason why it was Uh, such a disconnect to some degree when he walked in was because 11 months prior he had been in the same place giving a very sober, very stark speech about the need for Europe to come together, the need for Western democracies to actually work together to try and confront a one-month-old war. This was a moment to provide an affirmation to the effort that had gone into place. The fact that President Biden was standing in Kyiv next to President Zelensky yesterday, the fact that the coalition had stayed together, the fact that they had rebuffed Russia and President Putin up to this point. This was a rally, a rally to give credit to what had been done, but also a rally to maintain that effort going forward, Jake. All right, Phil Manningly in the Polish capital with President Biden. Thanks so much. In a radical contrast, hours before Biden's speech, Putin addressed his country, the tyrant blaming the West for his force, uh, forceful and brutal actions in Ukraine. Once again, uh, Putin issued nuclear warnings to the world. CNN's Matthew Chance reports now on Putin's escalatory speech as some critics even inside Russia, question the future with the one-year mark of Russia's invasion on the horizon. With a fanfare, the Russian president takes to the stage for a long-awaited State of the Nation address. But nearly a year since his invasion of Ukraine, no sign of remorse or regret, only bitterness towards the West. The responsibility for fueling the Ukrainian conflict, for its escalation, for the number of victims, lies completely with Western elites and, of course, with the current Kyiv regime, for whom the Ukrainian people are essentially strangers. Blaming others is how the Kremlin tries to explain why its special military operation, Let, let's move down this way. meant to last just days or weeks, was almost in its second year, with no end in sight. Across Russia, there were even public screenings of the speech to ensure the Kremlin message is heard, that military setbacks, failures and bloodshed are all part of a conspiracy to bring Russia to its knees. The Western elites do not conceal their goals. As they say, it's a direct quote, to bring Russia a strategic defeat. What does that mean for us? It means to end us once and for all. We understand it exactly and will react to it accordingly because this is about the very existence of our country. It doesn't feel that way in Ukraine, where troops are dying on bleak battlefields 
defending grim front lines against a Russian foe. Ukrainian officials pouring scorn on Putin's remarks as irrelevant and confused. There's growing criticism in Russia too. As new images emerge of more coffins reportedly from the front lines, one prominent Russian military blogger complained that Putin held back from officially declaring war. Not a word about failures and defeats, he writes. There's no point listening any further. But there was one major new announcement, one escalation. To applause, Putin suspending participation in Moscow's last remaining nuclear arms treaty with the United States. And a warning that Russia may restart nuclear tests. Of course, we will not do it first. But if the US conducts its tests, we will do it as well. Nobody should have dangerous illusions that global strategic parity can be broken. No illusion either when it comes to Russia's standoff with the West. The Kremlin is even thinking about backing down. Jake, after hearing Putin's uncompromising speech, a source close to the Ukrainian president tells me tonight that he thinks only more Ukrainian victories on the battlefield will lead to peace talks. The sooner uh, Ukraine gets the weapons it needs, this source told me, the sooner this war will be over. Jake, back to Matthew Chance in London for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Now to horrifying images from Ukraine's southern port city of Kherson today, where earlier today a Russian strike killed five and injured more than a dozen people. A warning to viewers, this next video is graphic. Ukrainian officials say the shelling killed civilians in the middle of the street. Others damaged a market, a kindergarten, and a hospital. CNN Sam Kiley is in northeastern, in the northeastern city of Kharkiv. And Sam, how are Ukrainians there feeling as the one-year mark of this brutal war approaches? Well, they're feeling a lot more robust than they did in those first few weeks of the war because a lot of the ground that the Russians took so quickly has been recovered, recovered uh, from around here in Kharkiv back in September and, of course, in Kherson, where that atrocity was committed today with five dead and more than a dozen injured uh, in November. Now, since then, the fighting has been uh, much more trench warfare as winter has set in. Both sides really fixed in position, very small movements on either side as the Ukrainians continue to beg for those strategic weapons they say are so important for driving the Russians out of the country. And I think what's important now with the Biden visit, both in Poland and recently in Kiev, uh, and recent statements coming from the European Union, there is now more and more of a signs of unanimity among those that support, those countries that support Ukraine, that victory for Ukraine is the absence, is driving Russians out of the country entirely, rather than allowing them to freeze their front lines, perhaps close to the uh, front line uh, areas that they captured when they first invaded, Jake, back in 2014. Jake? Sam Guiley in Kharkiv, Ukraine, thank you so much. Let's discuss all of this and more with the spokesman for the U.S. State Department, Ned Price. Ned, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. President Biden said every day this war continues, it's Putin's choice. But we we keep seeing these horrifying attacks on civilians like the one we just talked about in Kherson. Sanctions have not changed Putin's mind or stopped his war machine. Further arms and aid packages, billions of dollars worth to Ukraine haven't changed his mind. What can Western allies do to once and for all stop Putin from waging this war? 
Well, Jake, quite simply, we can continue doing what we've been doing for over the course of a year now. Uh, To the point one of your correspondents made, we do see the nexus between what happens on the battlefield and what will ultimately happen at the negotiating table. We know, just like President Zelensky knows, that this war will have to end with diplomacy. It will have to end with negotiations. And right now, we're focused on uh, strengthening our Ukrainian partners so that when, and I say when that negotiating table emerges, uh, our Ukrainian partners have as strong a hand as possible. That's on one side of the ledger. Uh, To your question, we're working on the other side of the ledger too. Just as we are supporting our Ukrainian partners, we're holding to account everyone in and around uh, the Kremlin, everyone in and around uh, Vladimir Putin who is uh, in any way supporting this war. We've sanctioned hundreds of individuals. We'll have more announcements on that front later today. We've degraded Moscow's ability to project force uh, beyond its borders. And everything we've done will have a compounding Mm -hmm. Effect uh, in the weeks and months to come. I know that the president is, it's a balancing act. You don't want to get too far ahead of the American people. You don't want to get too far ahead of NATO allies. Um, but you also don't want to let uh, Putin get an advantage and on and on. Um, but there's a lot of criticism from people who want and supporting President Biden's efforts here to help Ukraine that we're always just a little too behind. We're, we're helping Ukraine maintain a stalemate, we're not helping Ukraine win. Uh, And throughout Warsaw, signs and banners appeared encouraging Biden to send F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. Former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta agreed. He said everything, including those fighter jets, should be on the table. Why not let the Ukrainians have the F-16 fighter jets? Well, Jake, when you're in this line of work, you hear a lot of criticism. Uh, we've heard criticism of, a, of the kind that you just described. We've heard criticism from the other direction, uh, that we're doing too much. But I think if you want to take a look at the effectiveness of the campaign that we've marshaled with dozens of countries around the world since even before Russia started this brutal war of aggression, you need only look at what the Ukrainians have accomplished on the battlefield. There are two key ingredients. Number one, uh, and most important, is their grit, their determination, their resilience. Uh, but secondly... The United States and our partners around the world, we have enabled some of this tremendous battlefield success by providing them with precisely what they need for the battle they're in at the moment and for where the battle is headed. Uh, So in the earliest hours of this war, our Ukrainian partners were equipped with what they needed to ultimately win the Battle of Kyiv. In more recent months, we've provided them with the longer range systems, with the air defense systems, uh, with the uh, uh, mobile uh, uh, tanks and and armored vehicles, precisely what they will need as this battle rages in the east, as it rages in the Donbass, uh, where it's continuing to to grind out. So that will continue. We're having this conversation with the Ukrainians, first and foremost, to determine what they may need. Uh, And then we're having this conversation with our allies and partners uh, around the world and here at home uh, to see what it is that we have and what we can provide our Ukrainian partners to continue this remarkable success and progress that they've had on the battlefield. Obviously, this war is very unlikely to end with Putin gone and a, and a democratic reformed Russia emerging. So bearing that in mind, there does need to be an off-ramp for Putin, some way that he can end this war and maintain some sort of diplomatic cover. What's the off-ramp? How to do that? So the off-ramp is very clear, Jake. President Putin started this war a year ago. He could end this war today. He could end this war tomorrow. Now, You're under no illusions. I'm under no illusions. That's going to happen today or tomorrow. Uh, So in the interim, we're going to continue to do uh, what we've done. Uh, But frankly, look, our strategy has proven effective. Uh, There have been naysayers all along that 
we aren't doing enough or we're doing too much uh, or that uh, we heard a year ago that Ukraine would be no match uh, for the Russian invading forces. Well, at every step of the way, this coalition, this coalition that's been brought together by diplomacy out of this building, by leadership from the president, uh, it has stuck together. Not only has it stuck together, uh, but it's actually strengthened. And I think it's it's strengthened, strengthened in large part uh, because of American leadership. And it's strengthened because of the messages we're hearing on the world stage. Just today, Jake, uh, you heard two vintage presentations. You heard vintage Vladimir Putin, and you heard vintage Joe Biden. From Moscow, you heard something that was dark, it was sinister, it was full of lies and misinformation and disinformation, mm-hmm. precisely because uh, the Russian president has nothing affirmative uh, to offer his people in the face of these battlefield setbacks and Moscow's strategic failure. From Joe Biden, you heard vintage Joe Biden. It was affirmative. Uh, it was uh, really crystallizing mm-hmm. the stakes at what's at play here. This is about Ukraine in the first instance, uh, but what is happening in Ukraine is about the rules-based order in countries around the world are watching very closely to what Russia is trying to do, but more so, uh, they're watching the way in which the rest of the world, galvanized by American leadership, is standing up uh, for Ukraine, standing up against Russia, and doing so with such uh, tremendous effectiveness. All right, State Department spokesman Ed Price, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Coming up, emotional testimony today as Alex Murdoch's only surviving son testifies about the moment his father told him that his mother and his brother had been murdered. In our national lead, the only surviving son of disgraced former South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch testified as a defense witness in his father's double murder trial today. Alec Murdoch has pleaded not guilty to shooting, his, shooting and killing his wife and his youngest son in 2021. Buster Murdoch, the surviving son, told jurors his father was destroyed the night his mother and brother were killed. Here's CNN's Randy Kay with more on today's testimony. My, um... My dad called me. Buster Murdoch sharing in court how he first found out his mother and brother had been killed. He asked me if I was sitting down, and I was like, yeah. And then he, you know, sounded odd, and then he, then he told me that, that my mom and, and brother had been shot. Throughout his testimony, the defense peppered him with questions about his father and his family. Buster testified about how often his father showered given the state has suggested that Alec Murdoch showered and changed that day because he'd killed his wife and son. Videos from that day show him wearing different clothes before and after the murders. How frequently would your dad take a shower or a bath? He could take them. He could take them a lot. And, he, you know, working out there, if he goes outside and sweats a lot, comes back in and takes a shower. Was that normal routine for him? It was. The defense also played an interview Alec gave to investigators after the murders. At least one investigator testified he thought he heard Alec saying, I did him so bad, which would sound as if he confessed to killing Paul. The defense has argued Alec said they did him so bad. Buster weighed in in court. What did your dad say? said they did them so bad. They did him so bad. And given that Paul Murdoch was shot with both a buckshot and a birdshot from a shotgun, the defense seemed to lean on Buster to convince the jury that his father would never have loaded a shotgun like that. And you ever seen any guns on your property loaded in that fashion? No, sir. Buckshot with some sort of birdshot right behind it. 
No, sir. And nothing about the truth to help you God. I do. After Buster finished, this forensic engineer testified for the defense. He told the jury, based on his crime scene analysis and trajectory of the bullets, it is unlikely a tall person killed Paul Murdoch. It puts the shooter or whoever fired the weapon, if they were that tall, it puts them in a, in a uh, an unrealistic shooting position. You would have to be bending over and have your shooting hand down at or below your kneecap. And what's important about that to me is is that um, it just just makes it very unlikely that a tall person made that shot. And Jake, that same expert also testified that someone much shorter than Alec Murdoch, uh, he believes, killed Maggie Murdoch as well. And keep in mind, Alec Murdoch is 6'3 or 6'4. And this expert said that even if he was on his knees or someone as tall as he was was on his knees and shouldered the rifle, the math still would not add up. Jake. All right. Randy Kay outside the courthouse in Walterboro, South Carolina. Thanks so much. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley is not the only one calling for mental competency tests. We'll tell you who else wants to make that mandatory. That's next. In our politics lead, in a highly unusual move that Democrats are assailing as potentially dangerous, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has given Fox News producers access to all of the U.S. Capitol security footage from the January 6th insurrection. That's according to multiple sources, including Fox. Fox, of course, the news organization that knowingly pushed lies about the 2020 election, uh, repeatedly promoted on its airways, as revealed in a rather damning court filing last week that quoted Fox executives and hosts at length, bemoaning the lies they needed to share to get viewers. CNN's Lauren Fox is live on Capitol Hill for us. Lauren, this footage, this January 6th footage, had been strictly controlled by the January 6th committee and federal prosecutors. So what did they say about this move by Speaker McCarthy? Well, Democrats are really concerned about it, Jake, in part because they argue it does pose a potential security risk because you are talking about security footage that can show different angles of the U.S. Capitol as well as escape routes of some of the politicians who are racing to get out of this building on January 6th. Their concern, they say, is about whether or not a future attacker could use that footage to learn more about the premise here on Capitol Hill. But you have Hakeem Jeffries, the top Democrat in the House of Representatives, sending a letter to his colleagues saying he's going to get to the bottom of how this footage was transferred to Fox News, saying, quote, the apparent transfer of video footage represents an agreed security breach that endangers the hardworking women and men at the United States Capitol Police who valiantly defended democracy with their lives at risk on that fateful day. And it's not just Democrats concerned, Jake. You also have Republicans like former Congressman Adam Kinzinger telling CNN earlier that he can't believe that Kevin McCarthy made this decision. I would have thought that he had more respect for the institution. Uh, as to, you know, go through and understand where there are security concerns, turn it over to the committees of jurisdiction first to review. I think that's all this was, was trying to win over Tucker Carlson so we could have him on our side. The danger in this is significant. 
And some of this security footage was released as part of the January 6th committee's hearings, but it was always done according to the chairman and other aides that worked on that committee with consultation of the U.S. Capitol Police to ensure that some of that video footage didn't endanger the Capitol and the people who work here in the future. Jake? It's certainly unusual. Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill, thanks. And we still have not been able to get a response from Speaker McCarthy's office as to why he's making this decision and why it's not being released to all of the news media as opposed to one specific channel. Uh, let's talk about this with my uh, panel. And Elena, uh, Democrats are really blasting this decision. Uh, Jamie Raskin, the congressman uh, who was on the January 6th committee, tweeted in part, McCarthy giving 40,000 hours of January 6th tape to Fox. This is an astounding ethical collapse. What security precautions were taken to keep this from becoming a roadmap for a 2024 insurrection? Well, what are you hearing about the security concerns about this? Well, that's Democrats' main concerns. And I think some Republicans... As well, we spoke with Zoe Lofgren, a former member of the January 6th committee, and she told us that they were very careful with working with U.S. Capitol Police in, in what footage they could use during their hearings. One thing that they did not want to be shown was lawmakers being evacuated from the Capitol building. And, and she told us that she worried that showing something like that or other footage that could potentially be improperly handled could create a blueprint for, quote unquote, bad actors uh, to potentially try and attack the Capitol again. And I will say, just from my reporting, I spoke with several sources in Republican leadership, and they told me um, McCarthy did not go to them uh, before releasing this footage to Fox News or making the decision to turn over this footage to Tucker Carlson. And he did not consult Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, as well, before before deciding to turn over a lot of this footage. What's the justification for doing this, do you think? Well, I think what... McCarthy will eventually tell you when he uh, gives you an answer is that it's transparency, right? The the argument is going to be that the other the Democrats to give to one to, supportive channel. Sorry. Well, but of course, you know, procedures have to be followed also, so you don't just release anything. Right. I mean, I think that'll be the that'll be the argument. I think it's it's clever of the Democratic leader Jeffries to say basically we want more transparency. We want some transparency about this decision, how it was made, what things were considered. So he's not falling in, falling for that trap. Yeah, it may be the argument, but it only makes sense through the prism of politics. Because if it were transparency, I think we all can agree that it would have been given out to all the news organizations at the same time, which is pretty much standard protocol when you want to release something to the public. In this case, it only makes sense through politics because of also the timing of it. Kevin McCarthy wants to push aside the January 6th committee. He already has. Um, and Fox News wants to push aside the emails that just came out about four or five days ago, which right. are pretty damning, showing that Fox News hosts at the very top knew that Trump had lost the election and they went out and misled their audience anyway. Then what happens? January 6th. That is not a good look for Fox News. That is not flattering, to say the least. It's not good so, for them, is it? I, I, I am not here to judge yeah. whether it works, but I'm here to observe that empirically this is happening four days after those emails came out, we know that there's a tried and true tactic in politics of making a fuss and releasing information to try and change the topic from negative information. What do you, what do you, what's your take the, on this? The big winners here are not Fox News or, or Speaker McCarthy. It's all enemies, foreign and domestic. There are terrorists out there. Those of us old enough to remember 9-11 know that. Those of us old enough to remember January 6th know that. And, and I, as a part of the media now, I'm for transparency Somewhat and sometimes, frankly, but not when security is at issue and security is at issue here. That's our Capitol building. 
And the, the al-Qaeda terrorists are, are going to study this. The ISIS terrorists are going to study this. The Nazi terrorists are going to study this. Also, that Kevin McCarthy can suck up to a, a cable news host who, by the way, will never like him. Tucker will never like Kevin McCarthy, believe me. But who cares? He's, he's really endangering uh, the security of a whole lot of people, maybe even including himself, God forbid. So- if, if, the, if the footage that Carlson uses ends up not compromising anybody's security, though, I do think that the Fox play then will be to say, look at all this hysteria. They're always attacking us with these extreme scenarios that don't come to but, pass. But, Ramesh, how will they yeah. secure it? Yeah. Right? It's hard enough for the government to secure this. this, this let's say... And I, I really want to believe this, and I do believe this, that, that uh, Tucker and Fox are responsible with what they publicly release. How are they going to secure it? Are they going to be as secure as the, the, the U.S. Capitol Police Department, Homeland Security, FBI? I doubt it. I, I think they're much more vulnerable to penetration by enemies. I think you could see court than, challenges, too, restraining order to try and stop this. Um, wow. Well, beyond that, also, I just think there's the idea that transparency means releasing it to the public, releasing it to all news media organizations, mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, I want to ask about something else. Um, New York Times opinion writer uh, Waj Ali uh, made some very critical comments uh, yesterday, I think, uh, about, or maybe it was <clears> Sunday, <throat> about Governor Nikki Haley, who's now running for president. Take a look. She uses her brown skin as a weapon against poor black folks and poor brown folks, and she uses her brown skin to launder white supremacist talking points. And the reason why I feel sad is because no matter what she does, Mehdi, it'll never be enough. They'll never love her. They'll never love her. Um, immediately, obviously, Haley has, has jumped on this as, look, liberals are attacking me again. Um, what, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think that that's a gift to Haley's nascent campaign for her to be able to jump on these you know, dumb remarks by a pundit that just play into her hands and say, look, they're going after me based on my race. They can't handle my ideas. They can't handle the fact that I'm a skilled politician. I'm with Ramesh. Yeah, I think the, the fact that she got to be the governor of South Carolina with brown skin is a very impressive accomplishment. And I don't think it's something people ought to be attacking or ridiculing her about. Let's just take her based on her ideas. And uh, I, I might not like them as a Democrat. Republicans might. But I, I think it's a terrible thing to say about her. Well, one of the things that's odd also is you see some, I, wanna, I don't want to make too big a deal out of it, but you see some people on the left uh, noting that Nikki is not her f- original first name. I think it's her middle name. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically suggesting that she, I mean, it's not true. And th- these are the same people who objected to whenever Republicans would say Barack Hussein Obama. Um, I mean, it, it, there is a very ugly side of the left that comes out uh, when Nikki Haley runs for office. No, I think that's true. And I also think that this is something that I know her campaign has thought a lot about as you're launching a presidential campaign. They've expected some of these attacks. But I will say, Overall, she's leaned in to some of what has some of the messaging that has been surrounding her in the past week since announcing that she was running for president. And really, it's an extra media cycle, news cycle over and over again where she can seize on. Look at what the left's doing. Look at um, what liberals are trying to make me out to be and and use it to her advantage. And I actually think they've tried to play it smart with some of these attacks and turn them into something that they can use to further boost her among the right and with her base. In-kind contributions for the Haley campaign. (laughs) One last thing, Heidi. Donald Trump is joining Nikki Haley uh, in saying uh, there should be mental competency tests, not just for candidates, politicians who are over 75, but everyone. And I just wanted to remind people uh, that he talked about a mental competency test uh, uh, back in in 2020. You go, person, woman, man, camera, TV. 
they say, that's amazing. How did you do that? I do it because I have like a good memory because I'm cognitively there. So, Paul, back me up here, but I think that Democrats would be all in if Trump wanted to agree to a mental competency test if he becomes the nominee. But uh, look, I, I don't think that uh, I think what Nikki Haley's doing here is she's showing that she's not afraid to make age an issue. Um, I don't know that that's going to be a big issue, but uh, she's showing that she's not afraid to take him on because on it's pretty clear that she's referring to both Trump and Biden here. It's been a pretty good week for her, I have to say, uh, in terms of the attacks on her and also in terms of, like, she's been in the press a lot. Um, maybe next time for her policies, perhaps. <laughs> Coming up, a look at the proposal in Idaho that would make it a felony for doctors to provide transgender kids with certain medical treatments. We're going to talk to one family who is testifying against the bill. In less than 24 hours, I will be going on a plane to go to a consultation for SRS, or sexual reassignment surgery, which is planned to be taking place in a little over a year. I see this as my final step into the body that I should have been born into. This bill threatens to not only bar me from receiving this care, but also from accessing the hormones that have single-handedly not only improved, but saved my life. What do you mean by saved your life? Not just improved, but saved your life. I mean, um, okay, so before I went on uh, testosterone blockers and then estrogen, I was in, uh, like, the worst mental state of my life because I saw uh, going through male puberty as this this irreversible and um, horribly terrifying thing that would stop me from being able to live uh, the life that I, I should have been able to, you know? And so that was, it was absolutely horrifying. And I, I truly do believe that I, I would have um, ended up killing myself. I, I wasn't able to access that. Michael, um, a lot of people who testified pointed out the conflict between the bill and Republican lawmakers' statements on other matters of support for parental rights and, and, and freedom uh, one GOP state lawmaker said that Idaho law says some choices are abusive or inappropriate, even for a parent. How do you respond to that? It's really hard, honestly. I mean, we live in a state that values parental rights and religious freedom, yet the authors of this bill make it really clear that the only parental rights they are in favor of are those that they agree with. And religious freedom, the only thing they agree with is beliefs that they agree with. So as a family of faith and as parents who take parenting seriously, I never thought the state of Idaho would be our biggest enemy and trying to step between us and our kids and raising them. So Eve, one of the arguments you hear from, from opponents uh, uh, of body altering treatments is that they should wait until you're an adult, 18. Um, why are they wrong? Well, because you can't wait until you're an adult because you, for, for the vast majority of trans kids, they won't be adults without this treatment. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have made it past like 14 if I didn't have the, that treatment. Because you would take your own life is what you mean. Yeah. So Michael, your daughter started estrogen about three years ago. Where do you think she would be right now if she had not had access to this treatment? And what is your message to 
the people watching right now who don't understand, who, who, who don't get it? Well, let me start with that. I didn't get it either. I didn't understand right away either. And so I totally get it. Like, But I would say to them, let's not make understanding a prerequisite for loving people and allowing them to live the lives that they feel led to live. But I, I don't think any of us can understand what Eve's going through, but Eve can understand what I'm going through as a parent or an adult or a physical therapist. So I, I, don't, I think that isn't as big of a deal as we make it. And Eve, this bill would subject physicians to felony charges if they yeah. provide puberty blockers or hormone treatments or gender affirming surgeries to transgender minors. You've been treated by physicians um, with some yeah. of those treatments. Are, are you worried about physicians in Idaho? I'm terrified. Yeah. It would be absolutely devastating, not only to me, but to so many other trans people living in Idaho, so many trans kids living in Idaho, and so many physicians who just want to be able to give their patients um, these these treatments that have been, you know, legal for so long and that are are tested and, and proven to to work. Jake, if I may, this is evidence-based medicine we're talking about. And the the witnesses that the proponents of this bill brought in were really fringy characters that that were literally suggesting things that went that flew completely in the face of the AMA and the American Academy of Pediatrics. I mean, this is a skilled group. I think they probably could have found astronauts against space travel if they'd looked hard <laughs> enough. And the thing of it is that's setting the standard of care in Idaho to be fringy as opposed to evidence-based medicine, which my wife, who's a physician, and I love our kids too much to subject them to fringy medicine. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that comes across, and there's certainly debates that can be had about girls' athletics and things like that, but when it comes to the cruelty that we see in this debate so often, the meanness about some of the most vulnerable people in our society, uh, it's really just remarkable and not how any faith teaches us to behave. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting that you brought that up because the reason why uh, people are subjecting kids like me, trans kids, to this, uh, this harsh uh, antagonism is because we are the most vulnerable group right now that are okay to attack. Because, you know, before... It was trans kids. It was gay kids. Um, for that, it was it was gay adults. And so, as those things have become, become more uh, normalized, they can't attack that group anymore. And so, we're just next on the chopping block, really. I just remember hearing this story about um, George W. Bush when he was president, and he had a transgender classmate. You've probably heard it, but yeah. the, I guess they had the Yale twenty fifth reunion or whatever it was uh, at the White House, mm-hmm. and the transgender woman said, you might not remember me when I guess they were in the line. You might not remember me because back when I was at Yale, I was so-and-so. And and then President Bush, not known for being a huge supporter of LGBTQ rights at the time, said, and now you're you. Uh, I thought that was a a special story. Even Michael Davitt, thank you so much. Thanks for your courage coming on today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for for listening. Appreciate it. And if you or anyone you know needs help, please call or text the Suicide Crisis Lifeline at 988. We'll be right back. 
The chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021 severed thousands of Afghan families. CNN's Natasha Chen talked to one family attempting to reunite. A daily video call is the only way Ahmad Roman can connect with his wife and daughter in Kabul. It's my daughter. We're keeping his wife and daughter's faces concealed for their safety. They're in the dark with electricity for only a few hours each day when they could have been here in this small light-filled apartment in California. Their family's sudden separation happened at the Kabul airport during the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And after a year and a half, Roman is no closer to getting his wife and daughter here. Someone asked me about that day. In mid-August 2021, the family and their relatives headed to the airport, knowing their safety would be at risk under Taliban rule. But when they boarded the crowded cargo planes, they suddenly could not find their older son, Uzair. His parents came out of the plane searching for him amidst the chaos. Just thousand people on the round. They finally realized Uzair was already with another relative on a different plane. But by that point, his mother and sister had been pushed beyond the airport gates. I cry a lot to them that please let me go inside my, my kids, my family inside the plane, but didn't let me. Roman waited and was one of the last to board his plane. He is now a single parent, raising Uzair and little Rahman, who has now spent half of his young life in the U.S. Ask him, Rahman, who's she? She told me, it's mom. But uh, I know. Rahmanas don't know what's mom meaning. Roman's wife said the Taliban requires male supervision for her to go anywhere, including the store, and their daughter may not be able to continue school. I'm just worried about my daughter's future. It wasn't until January when the U.S. State Department published a form for humanitarian parolees like Roman to apply for reunification assistance. Several advocacy groups across the U.S. each tell CNN they're working with dozens of families in the same situation, with one group, Women for Afghan Women, trying to help 400 separated families. When I see my kids on camera, but I cannot touch them, it's so difficult for me. We asked the State Department how many Afghan families are still waiting for reunification, but their press office says the number is fluid and that they have, quote, already resettled thousands of Afghans, reunited families, and welcomed them into our communities across the country. And our thanks to Natasha Chen for that report. Wolf Blitzer is next in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.